1: Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. And we've just seen something historic happen digitally in the halls of Congress when the four CEOs of four of the biggest tech companies in the world, Amazon and Apple and Facebook and Google, were required to testify before Congress. And while there, they were put in the position of having to defend their companies uh, against claims that they've just become too big, that they've become gigantic, to the detriment of the general public, that they are using their market power to crush competition, that they're driven by nothing but their own profits, that they're amassing huge amounts of data, and that basically they're running afoul of antitrust laws. Some people are, are calling this big techs big tobacco moment, which is a callback to the 1990s when seven CEOs of big tobacco companies all had to appear before Congress and be accused of doing bad things to the public. But is this fair in this case? Are these companies really doing bad things because of their size? Are they really too big? And are you, the consumer, losing out because they've become big? Or are you actually benefiting because of the size of these firms. So we think in these questions, we have the makings of a debate and that's what we're going to do. But we're going to do it a little bit differently from our normal approach. Today, we're going to be hosting this conversation in a format that we call Agree to Disagree. And that's where we streamline things a little bit. We go to the news, we find the dividing lines, and then we bring you what we do best, a debate in the form of a conversation between. Just two debaters, not our usual two against two. Instead, we're one-on-one. And instead of having a resolution, we're really going with a question. And the question this time is, should Washington break up big tech? Should Washington break up big tech? I'm here with two debaters who are going to be arguing yes or no to that question, Zephyr Teachout, and Andrew McAfee. So first, uh, Zephyr, uh, you've debated with us before on stage, and I just want to say welcome back to Intelligence Squared.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to be back on. Thank you for having me for such an important discussion.
1: It's a pleasure. And and for folks who don't know, you are a law professor, you're an activist. uh, And as it happens, you came out with a book this July, the title of which is "Break 'Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. So which side of the debate are you going to be on again today?
0: I definitely think we need to be uh, breaking up these big tech uh, behemoths.
1: And, And hence your book. Okay, now arguing against your position, Arguing no on the question of whether Washington should break up big tech, I want to welcome Andrew McAfee. Andrew, we've we've been wanting to get you into one of our debates for a long time. We are delighted to have you joining us for this one.
2: And and all it took was a global pandemic, right? <laughs> but thank you for having me.
1: <laughs> it's a pleasure. I, and for folks who don't know, you also are a best-selling author. Uh, you're a principal research scientist at MIT. You're also the co-founder and co-director of the Initiative on the Digital Economy. So once again, welcome to Intelligence Squared. So um, the way that this form will go we'll go in four rounds the first round uh, each of the debaters will be making a brief uh, opening remarks about their position on the the question before us and then uh, we will have a you know a, a long and lengthy back and forth discussion towards the end we're going to go to our third round which will be where each gets to put a the toughest question they can to their opponent and then a fourth round will be closing remarks and wrapping things up. So um, there's a lot to discuss, uh, a lot to argue here, and we're going to start with our opening rounds. That's where each debater gets two minutes to make the case uh, uh, in their position on the question, would, should Washington break up big tech? So our first uh, debater will be Zephyr Teachout, who will be arguing yes on the question of whether Washington should break up big tech. So Zephyr, the floor is yours.
0: We are in a moment of a genuine crisis in our democracy. And so I want to start with some first principles, uh, the principles of equality and freedom. Uh, A central job of democracy and government is to, in service of those goals, protecting citizens from any group or any person wielding too much power, uh, from abuses of excessive private power, from private government um, basically arising out of the corporate form. Um, anti-monopoly and antitrust is a deep and powerful American tradition. I mean, it was at the heart of the American Revolution. Think about the Tea Party protests. The great uh, anti-monopolists of our country include E. B. Du Bois, who saw how monopoly power was used to crush. Black political power after the Civil War, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was arguably the greatest trust buster this country has ever seen. Um, And from 1940 to 1980, we led the world in anti-monopoly using antitrust, campaign finance laws, public utility regulation, labor laws, and other tools to ensure that no private company had too much power. But Since 1980, when Reagan tore down uh, anti-monopoly laws in their spirits, um, Democrats and Republicans alike have failed and instead embraced a policy of radical concentration. And the result is the world we live in now. Office supplies, wireless food, beer, retail, um, defense contracting. Think about books, pharma, voting machines, banking. In all of these uh, areas, there has been a radical contraction of markets and a radical consolidation. Um, In the last decade, we've allowed over 500,000 mergers worldwide. Think like DuPont and Dow, Amazon and Whole Foods, Walmart and Bonobos, Monsanto and Bayer. And nowhere is the problem of concentrated power and abuses of that power as dangerous and essential a threat to democracy as in big tech where you have surveillance-based business models and control over the means of communication and commerce. These uh, give these titans really outsized governing power over our lives. And we'll talk more about each of these companies. I think we're going to focus on uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. And the hearing this week, which showed um, what Any company that depends on these behemoths knows, these are all companies that are at the center of our economy and our communication system. They all use their power to protect their power. They all copy, kill, or buy rivals. They all charge extortionate fees to those who use their services. They all rely on surveillance. And it is time that we take on this rival form of uh, government and break them up.
1: Thanks very much, Zephyr. And now, Andrew, it's your turn to argue why we should not break up these tech companies. Andrew, the
2: time is yours. Great. And and first of all, again, thank you for hosting this really important conversation. Zephyr and I actually agree about a couple very important aspects of it. Uh, First of all, that our tech sector in America and globally, and to some extent our economy, is currently dominated by a pretty small number of very, very big very powerful, very influential companies. There's just really no argument about that. The other thing she and I agree on is that these are imperfect companies. And I don't mean to use imperfect as a weasel word, I mean to use it as kind of a catch all for things like unethical, maybe, or illegal, or bad for society. I mean, these companies have problems associated with them, and I'm sure we'll spend some time. Talking about them. Where Zephyr and I are going to disagree, I predict, is on both of those things. Again, I think the imperfections are smaller. I think they're manageable with our current legal framework with possibly a couple tweaks to it. And they don't require the wholesale dismantling of these companies. The thing I think she and I are going to most fundamentally disagree about, though, is the is the notion that big equals bad here, uh, because I don't believe that. And I want to go back, draw back a little bit and think about what we want a technology sector in an economy to do. We want it to turn out lots of digital goods and services that we value and that make our lives better in lots of ways. We want those companies to continue to innovate on all those goods and services. And we want them to do that at scale, hopefully global scale, so the world can benefit from good technologies. To do those things, you need big companies. And in some cases, you need great big companies. Now, what we also want our tech sector to be is intensely competitive and open to disruption. So I want to see how good a job. I want to diagnose how good a job the tech sector is doing with a you know really, really personal example. As we all know, this debate came together just in the past couple days. And so when, when we finally got this together, I was interested in Zephyr's work. So I went and went to one of these big companies, Amazon, and was able to immediately download her book. Now, that was kind of important because I'm hiding from the coronavirus in a small town in the middle of nowhere. And I had no opportunity to go to a book shop and maybe see if if her book was in stock. So that downloading was really valuable to me. It came from a great big tech company. I read it on a device made by another one of these great big tech companies, Apple. And to try to get myself ready and understand her arguments a bit better, I Googled around. I went to another great big tech company and wound up watching a video, Zephyr, that you did with C-SPAN on YouTube. So again, there are countless examples of behaviors, of of activities like this taking place all around the world, every day, all day, thanks to the big tech companies. Now, I think an alert listener here is probably at this point going, okay, those are goods and services at scale, but you've just highlighted three really dominant, you know, huge tech companies. What about the competition and what about the disruption? And to me, this is where the things get really interesting because all of us on this video chat right now, know that we are not using the collaboration, the video chat software developed by um, Apple or Facebook or Alphabet Google or Cisco or any of the giant other tech companies or Microsoft. They all have video collaboration software. They've had it for a while. We're not using it. We're using this upstart technology called Zoom which came out of nowhere, took on established huge players in a market that they were already part of, and is running away with that market. And it's just—it's a, a classic American tech story. It's founded by an immigrant. It, it realized that things could be a lot better even in an established market, and it has made a better product, which we are now using. Zoom has a market cap of $70 billion these days. So I think the competition and the disruption are actually both healthy as well. And for when I put all that together, I really don't see the justification for breaking up these big tech companies right now.
1: Thanks very much, Andrew McAfee. Okay, so we've seen some very, very clear dividing lines between the two of you in in your opening remarks. Um, I I hear Zephyr saying that. There's a radical concentration that, in in significant ways, uh, is leading to inequality and a suppression of innovation. Uh, Whereas Andrew is saying, these companies, uh, you know, there are problems, they have problems, but he doesn't think the dismantling of their structures into smaller parts is a solution. That big does not equal bad. That there are actually benefits to big do the benefits of big tech outweigh the risks? And should Washington break up companies like Apple and Google and Amazon and Facebook? More debate coming up from Intelligence Squared U.S.
3: with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.
1: This is Intelligence Squared US. Andrew McAfee highlighted some of the benefits of big tech in everyday life when preparing for this debate. Next, we will hear from Zephyr Teachout, who is arguing for breaking up big tech. I want to take to you, Zephyr, the critique I've seen in my research of the position against breaking them up is that traditionally, uh, not traditionally, but over the last forty years, the metric that antitrust uh, thinking has used to determine whether a company is too big, to 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 is, is so big that it's causing harm, is whether or not it's having a positive or negative impact on consumer prices. And Google does its stuff for free. Facebook does its stuff for free, and by free I mean it doesn't charge a dollar amount to its users to participate in their products. So. Do you do you acknowledge or accept or 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 refute the notion that this question of whether it's it's lower prices down to the point of zero is the correct and relevant metric for determining whether bigness is bad or not?
0: Uh, thanks for the question, um, and I just want to underline what you just suggested so people can see these two possible different frameworks for thinking about trust busting, antitrust, anti monopoly. One framework, which I think Andrew is clearly coming out of basically puts consumer pricing as um, as the, the key question consumer welfare perhaps more broadly and um, and innovation.
1: Just so I can jump in so to help to help uh, to, to help the audience understand when you say consumer welfare what would what might that include beyond pricing?
0: Well in practice it ends up uh, the way that courts end up analyzing it is largely around pricing. On the other side is the uh, much longer tradition and tradition that I think we need to revive, um, which says, look, antitrust and anti-monopoly is about a whole lot of things. It's absolutely about innovation. And in fact, you're going to have a lot more innovation when you have a decentralized economy, when the tens of thousands of sellers who are dependent on Amazon don't um, have to pay exorbitant fees, 30% of the amount they're earning on Amazon going to Amazon, they're actually going to be able to innovate more. Innovation is incredibly important and innovation is more likely to come from an actually decentralized marketplace. Uh, the The role of workers, uh, workers having real meaningful choices in the workplace and not being stuck with just a handful of employers, that's a value.
1: Right, but, but Andrew, would, con- I think, would concede that point and says that there are, there are already avenues of redress on that. But I, I think the issue we're really tr- focusing on is this notion of the breakup,
0: well, well, no, I actually think there's good reason to think that, I mean, there's a reason that 47 different attorneys general are looking into Facebook and Google on antitrust grounds. And, um, that uh, many of us see the FTC's just downright failure to stop the Instagram Facebook merger, um, not as an example of, uh, uh, or as an example of a failure to enforce existing laws to ensure breakups and to ensure anti-monopoly. So even under existing laws, there's so much we can do to break these companies up. And also, uh, we should return to the old framework. So I, I just want to recognize that there's these two parallel debates going on.
1: So, Andrew, I'm hearing Zephyr say that uh, the 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 existence of these large companies at such scale in such dominant we- fashion actually has a whole series of harms that go beyond whether it's good for the user or not she's she's talking about whether it's good for communities to to you know to not have small retail, uh, potentially because of an Amazon and an argument we had heard in the past about Walmart, and that it's harmful for workers, that they don't have, in some communities, they may not have choices of other places to go. And and we know that there uh, have been charges, for example, that the Amazon warehouses have been not very, very kind to, to workers. We're not going to litigate that now. But what I wanted to take on is her point that bigness isn't just about the impact the, the, the relevant metric is not just the impact on the end user of the product, but that there are many, many other stakeholders who can be harmed and are being harmed, she argues, by the sheer scale of these
2: companies. So what about that argument? Um, I find it too fuzzy. Uh, how are you going to specify the ex- the nature and the extent of the harms to the to the point where you could reasonably determine whether you're going to take this big step this really big step of br- of grabbing a hammer and breaking up a company that is one of the most severe things you can do in a, in a market-based economy is say you don't get to be a company anymore so before we take that step we want to have really really Clear guidelines about the harms and a clear understanding about the harms and as Zephyr, as I listen to you talk i don 't hear either of those things. I hear a bunch of kind of nebulous worries that are not very well specified or nailed down and what what deeply worries me about that is that if we're, we're very well served by being a nation of laws. I think we're very poorly served by being a nation of whims and intuitions about things like when a company is too big. And to say one more thing, again, if we have these specific categories of bad behavior, if labor standards are not being met, if warehouses are unsafe, if, um, if political advertising Laws are being broken or they're inadequate for what's going on right now. Great. We have lots of ways to address those things, again, short of grabbing the hammer and breaking up the company.
0: So I think what's going to be really useful now is to answer your question with a very specific example. I want to talk about Amazon um, and uh, Amazon's relationship to its sellers, the tens of thousands of sellers that rely on Amazon in order to get their goods to market. Amazon is not merely a marketplace, but it also provides fulfillment by Amazon warehousing and shipping services. It also provides advertising services. So what sellers have learned over the last several years, and one of the key targets of the current investigation, is that use of these ancillary services has an impact on their rankings When you go to search for something so if I go to search for say glow-in-the-dark frisbees If I if you Andrew have been a frisbee seller who has not used Amazon's fulfillment by Amazon services or Amazon's um, advertising services You Andrew are not likely to show up in the magic buy box The sort of most golden real estate the thing most desired by sellers to be successful so uh, this may be, in fact um, a violation of existing laws against tying, basically Amazon essentially requiring sellers to use one uh, uh, one service in order to have access for another. I think after uh, this week 's hearing we 're going to see more investigations into it. But the practical effect is that amazon's uh, uh, fees to sellers Have gone drastically up over the last five years, from eighteen percent to thirty percent. So, what kind of remedy should we have? Yes, we need an investigation into tying violations. But what? When I am talking about breaking up, what I am saying is, Amazon uh, Marketplace can be Amazon Marketplace, but it can't be Amazon Marketplace and fulfillment by Amazon. In fact. You can break up the fulfillment services very easily. Amazon Marketplace should not also be providing the advertising services, which creates an extraordinary opportunities for basically getting extra fees from sellers. And most importantly, that I have what I haven't already mentioned is Amazon should not then also be directly competing against its own sellers, as it discussed and admitted it was doing in the hearing this week. So I think sometimes when you talk about breaking up people don't have an imagination of what that is that's just from amazon look at google when google directly competes against other airline ticketing services and gets to choose who shows up in uh, in the search results it turns out Google flight tracker shows up very high, which doesn't serve anybody but Google and actually leads to an erosion of the quality of services because it hurts the the higher quality flight trackers. So most of what I'm talking about here are structural separations that say... You should be in one business, but not have the incentive and opportunity to abuse that power to extract value from from other people um, who you're competing against.
1: So Andrew, what I hear Zephyr saying is that these companies are in a dual position of being the gatekeeper to a marketplace And also being a participant in the marketplace and that there is an inherent conflict of interest. And once they get to a certain scale, that that is unfair to the other participants in the marketplace and that that's happening with Amazon. It's happening with Google. It's happening with Apple and its App Store. Uh, Arguably, it's happening with Facebook in regard to media content. So I think that's the principle that she's saying that there's the dividing line. And what is your response to
2: that? That's been true with Sears Roebuck. That's been true with Bed Bath & Beyond. That's been true with Walmart. In all of these cases, the companies were both running the store and putting their own products on the shelf, uh, their own label products, learning about what was selling and using that to refine their offerings. Uh, Zephyr, you used the word should um, many times in your most recent comments. And with all respect, that's your opinion. There's nothing in the law right now that says that that those kinds of um, behavior or or activity and multiple multiple activities at the same time Is illegal or even should be legal. That's your opinion. Uh, Amazon clearly disagrees with that. The consumers clearly disagree with that. There are millions of sellers on Amazon who disagree with that, at least enough to keep doing business there. I imagine your response here might be, yeah, but Amazon is a monopoly. Amazon is in no sense of the word a monopoly. It has less than 40% market share. Of e-commerce in America, that market share is actually going down over the course of 2020, not going up. And you can do a marketplace on you can join a marketplace on Walmart, which is a pretty big company. You can do it on Shopify, you can sell on Etsy or eBay. The idea that these sellers are permanently locked in to Amazon if they don't like what's going on, I, I just think that's that's dead flat wrong.
0: Forty percent was the number that you saw. Um, uh, uh, Bezos mentioned most people accept it at around 70%.
2: I'm not one of those people. I don't accept that at 70% at all. I've seen a couple different fact, uh, estimates that say 38% but, but, right now.
0: But, but, well, but the difference is the key thing. No, they, the difference the between 40% and,
2: and 70% assessment. is actually a huge difference. I'm looking at the Justice, Justice Department guidelines right now, and it can't find a single example of a successful antitrust action that was taken when market share was below 50%.
0: So I think there's, again, we're having two different debates. There's some evidence that uh, about tying contracts and uh, attaching and further investigation that needs to be done into whether Amazon is effectively requiring um, sellers to use one service in, other to have, in order to have another service. But there's another debate which is, should we actually return to a structuralist approach in antitrust law, which is essentially what I'm arguing, as what the country had between 1940 and 1980 before Ronald Reagan rewrote the antitrust guidelines. And the structuralist approach in antitrust law is like a a prophylactic approach, say, in campaign finance law. Instead of waiting around until there's after-the-fact evidence of quid pro quo bribery or violations— You try to create laws that uh, make sure that there isn't temptation for conflict of interest. And right now, these tech companies have both incentive and opportunity to extract enormous fees. The best evidence of Amazon's dominant power right now is how much more they are getting from seller fees in the last five years. And by the way, their profits are increasingly coming from those seller fees. So what you see is that Amazon has put itself in a choke point role.
1: I want to move into a different in a different direction, but before we do, I want to give Andrew a chance to respond to what you just said, if you would like to, Andrew.
2: Yeah, there's there's kind of an abstract conversation around power that you want to make concrete. I want to make the discussion around choice a little bit more concrete. Again, sellers are not locked into Amazon. They have many other places where they can go try to offer their um, their goods to the public. And you mentioned that you might not like your relationship with Amazon. There's a survey about this that came out in 2020, and 58% of the sell- Amazon sellers think that Amazon is a good company for sellers. Now, are, are 58% of them being having their arms twisted so badly that in an anonymous survey, they're trying to say nice things about their giant corporate overlord? I, I really don't think so.
1: All right. I want to let you know, Andrew and Zephyr, that prior to today's recording, we reached out to members of our... Uh, Intelligence Squared U.S. community, uh, both in our national audience and also we reached out to some of our past debaters who we respect as always, and we asked them to submit some questions for this conversation. Uh, And I want to say before we get into that, if you are listening to this and you did submit a question online or through social media and we don't get to it today, apologies. We just can't fit them all in, but please keep sending them in. We have limited time, but we do love hearing from you. So let's go to a question from a member of our audience. Hello everyone. My name is Ramesh Srinivasan. I'm a professor at UCLA who
0: writes about uh, technology and its impact on our politics, economics, and world. Um, My question uh, for you all is um,
2: related to what we describe as network effects with big technology companies. So, I guess the question is, how can we even begin to think about breaking up big tech? if the impact on the specific applications so many of us as billions of users uh, depend upon are uh, far less user-centric, uh, perform far less, and actually in many ways are crippled by the breaking up uh, of the big tech companies themselves.
1: Thank you, Ramesh, Ramesh, for the for the question. And Andrew, you, you had said at the beginning that big is not necessarily bad. And there we hear Ramesh arguing that big actually in some ways is very good. And he talks about the network effect, the fact that the it's sort of the essence of Facebook's engine and uh, what it delivers in a positive way, that it has you know such a huge number of users, which goes to its very scale. So what do you make of, of that point? And then I want to get Zephyr's ra-
2: response to it as well. Well, like you can imagine, I, I really, I largely agree with it. And WhatsApp is incredibly valuable to me because the people that I want to talk to for free around the world are also on WhatsApp. That's the whole point. It's a network effect. Economists would call it a demand-side economy of scale. The, the counter-argument might be that that's what locks in these companies and makes them permanent monopolies, and we have to worry about that. If that were true, we would be sitting here talking about the dominant MySpace monopoly. I'm just not worried that we have, even with network effects, that we have a permanent new class of monopolists. The history of tech just shows shows way too much disruption for me to believe otherwise. Zephyr?
0: Yeah, so I I really appreciate the question because I think it it will help clarify what our true anti-monopoly solution would be. Part of the anti-monopoly solution that I talked about before would say, okay, you can be Google search, but if you're Google search, you can't also then compete uh, against... Google uh, other flight trackers. You can't also own Google Shopping, basically your search, but nothing else. In that case, there's no problem with your question because we're talking about a structural separation, a kind of glass-steagle for tech. You get to pick your field to ensure that you don't create conflicts of interest where dominance in one field allows you to get an unfair leg up in other fields. When it comes to then questions like, Search or social media. I think there are incredible values to scale and to the network uh, networked relationships. And in those areas, I think you know we we can recognize the natural monopoly or quasi natural monopoly effects, and then treat these in the vein of the public utility tradition. Understand that, for instance, Facebook, Google, and Amazon Marketplace. All fall very naturally as public utilities that we all essentially rely on. What does that mean? It means that they can maintain their scale, but must be subject to non discrimination principles a requirement to share their um, algorithms, and and an understanding that they're playing these central roles in our communications infrastructure and market infrastructure. What I think the key thing to to recognize here, and I, I suspect that Andrew agrees with me, is that these are effectively where our public communications infrastructure lies now, and that there's a long American tradition of recognizing the importance, the special importance of protecting our public infrastructure, the most important thing is it shouldn't be owned by Mark Zuckerberg and and, and Google, basically uh, owning our public libraries, our post offices, and using them for private ends. Just very briefly, I happen to think that the key thing with both Facebook and Google is that because they are public communications infrastructure, their business model is really the problem. And that's not a problem of scale. That's a problem of scale plus a targeted ads business model. And we should ban the targeted ads business model for communications infrastructure.
1: Zephyr Teachout, responding to our first audience question from Ramesh Sweenivasan. This is Intelligence Squared US. More debate in just a moment. From Intelligence Squared US, I'm John Donvan, and we are in the midst of our audience questions in what we're calling Agree to Disagree. More questions and closing arguments are coming up next.
2: Zephyr, are are you saying that that Facebook and Google shouldn't get to be publicly traded companies or, or private companies? We should nationalize them?
0: No, I'm saying they should be public utilities. The public utility tradition says that there are companies that play a special role. And the key forms of public utility tradition include um, making sure that there is fair, non-discriminatory access. That's, that's the heart of them. I am saying also that the um, targeted ad business model, which we haven't talked about at all right now, but the way in which Facebook not just allows but makes money off of um, prioritizing inflammatory posts is actually really toxic for our public sphere.
2: Andrew? I think what's toxic for our public sphere is the fact that a few media outlets have learned how to make very, very enticing content that people are eager to share. And if we had a magic de-biaser, de-amplifier for the Facebook feed algorithm, those stories would still be way too prominent. The, the fault is in some of our mental glitches that make us like these click-baity kinds of things. Now, again, I'm not saying that Facebook has been, uh, has been free of blame in its ad business and in, and in, in the algorithms that, that assemble all of our feeds, but man, that's not the real problem. And Zephyr, you say we've, we don't want to privatize government. If we give Facebook more power to determine the stuff that's in front of us, or we, we subject it to more regulation, isn't that giving them more governmental-like powers? I, I, I want a lighter touch there.
1: We have another question that actually adds some spice to the point we are at in this conversation. Let's go to our next questioner, please. My name is Joel Taylor. I'm a financial analyst in renewable energy and water reclamation. My question is, why should we not expect the market to manage these admittedly huge entities within normal market forces that tend against concentration of wealth, power, and monopolization? Thank you. Joel, thanks for your question, suggesting that the market will sort out the kind of concerns that you have about concentrations of power. What about that?
0: All markets have rules that allow them to be free or make them unfree in certain ways. And anti-monopoly and antitrust laws up until 1980, and even still now, but not not nearly as successfully, have actually been an essential part of those rules. The reason that you need antitrust laws is that once a company gains a, a foothold Um, It has the capacity to use that foothold of power to protect a monopoly or to extend a monopoly. And there are three particular tactics that big tech uses, and these three tactics were actually at the center of the hearing on Tuesday this week. They are kill, copy, or acquire. And this is to basically kill any threatened competition before it can become too big. Think of Kronos eating uh, Zeus so that he would not come to take him over. Um, To uh, copy it. And there was a lot of uh, evidence at the hearing that Amazon, Google um, were uh, taking features of potential threats or to acquire it. And again, the center of the hearing last week was evidence that Um, Mark Zuckerberg internal, pretty explicit internal emails that showed that Mark Zuckerberg um, was afraid of the threat that Instagram had. So because of the existing power they have and the incredible long leash they have from Wall Street and their ability to cross subsidize um, different parts of their own Um, big uh, behemoths. These companies are in a position to basically keep a spying eye out at all times, constantly looking around for potential competitors, and then using one of these three strategies to make sure that they don't actually make it out of the cradle and come to compete with them.
1: Zephyr, I I apologize that I I keep breaking in because you you get on very, very good points, but I just need to give some openings for Andrew to respond. So, Andrew, is there any part of that that you would like to respond to before I go on to another question?
2: Yeah, the first and most critical thing to understand is that Kronos actually did not eat Zeus. He was saved by his mother from that fate. Now, <laughs> if, if that's an indication of the fact pattern here, I think we're in some trouble. Uh, Zephyr, if what you said was accurate, we, we would not have Zoom. We would not have Slack. We would not have Snap. We would not have Airtable. We would not have these Dropbox. We would not have these companies that are independent, that are very successful, that are growing, that are doing great things in the tech industry if that kill, copy, um, acquire strategy were as successful as you're making out. I think we would also not have the near or at record high levels of VC investment in tech because they'd be scared away by the kill and copy elements of that strategy. So I, I'm just not as bothered about that. The, I, I agree, these, large tech companies are tough competitors. And I agree with you. They're scanning the environment. That does not mean that they're going to be successful at stamping out or acquiring everything that, that they don't like. You've brought up a, a few times, and, and this gets directly to the question, uh, this turning point in 1980, where, according to you, our antitrust enforcement just got a lot worse and a lot weaker. The really important thing to keep in mind is that prior to 1980 our economy was a great deal more concentrated than it's been since 1980. Uh, In the 60s and 70s, our economy was more dominated by great big companies than it is now. And we can think about GE, GM, Ford, Exxon, and Mobil. They were a bigger chunk of the overall um, stock market, a bigger chunk of the overall economy than these big five are today. So I'm not, you know, it, we want to go back to this halcyon period that you're talking about when our economy was even more concentrated and more dominated by big companies. I, I, I don't quite follow that. So
1: I think that was an opening for you, Zephyr, to jump in. <laughs>
0: so first of all, if you look at sector after sector, and uh, I, I think we'll get to send in some documentation, but if you look at sector after sector, our economy is, is more concentrated. I don't believe in any halcyon period, but we have had just this sort of extreme concentration ab- across the board. no, no that's second, I'm sorry, to point that's my point. That we, we have not, point no, we have not.
2: A, our economy used to be much more concentrated in the 60s and 70s than it is now, by, by any of the, any of the common measures. I
1: want to move on to another question, which I think will help us to reflect a little bit more on what's been called in this debate, the halcyon period. Let's go on to our next question. My name is David Wood. I work in specialized communication technology, but do not consider myself a part of big tech. My question is, how is a breakup of these monopolistic BMS a meaningful solution? Might they just grow new body parts where the old ones have been chopped off? So... What I found interesting about David's question is it reminded me of one of the great antitrust breakups, which was of AT and T and the Bell Company, the Bell Telephone Company, into a series of smaller uh, local telephone companies back in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Again, going I think to Andrew's point that there was great concentration post war uh, up through the 1980s or so. That company was broken up, and yet what we've seen since then is those parts coming together again and merging to- again. Sort of suggesting the argument that there's a that there's a, a a business or other imperative dynamic to to move towards bigness in order to serve customers. So I think David's question is if you break up a Facebook or an Amazon, what's the chance that they're going to grow themselves back together again? What's your take on that, Zephyr?
0: Well, first of all, just because monopoly is a constant threat against, against which we need to be always vigilant and always enforcing laws doesn't mean we should give up the whole game. And the example of AT&T or the example of the antitrust invest investigation of IBM, all of these big antitrust cases led to extraordinary flowering. If we had not taken on Microsoft uh, we, we wouldn't have Facebook and Google and the Silicon Valley that grew out of these extraordinary antitrust investigations. So, what we should learn from the past is that antitrust enforcement actually leads to flowering, leads to innovation, and we must be vigilant. But my hope would be to to the question is that we would basically, one, do the investigation, do the breakup, but then put in place um, basic merger uh, guidelines that are a lot closer to the merger guidelines we had before 1965, which had a default that you can't grow. I think people often look at these companies as if they're organic. Google bought a company a week one year. These are big conglomerates that have built through ac- acquisition.
2: Can I ask you a question on that one? What, what, guide, what guideline would have prevented Facebook from acquiring a company with no revenue and f- uh, fewer than 20 employees and a 30 million users around the world? That Instagram acquisition, you know, with hindsight, a lot of us are saying that should not have been allowed. What possible guideline would have forbade that at the time?
0: Well, I actually think that that you're going to see some investigations into that and that that's going to be reopened, because in that case, the guideline is uh, the Sherman Act, which prohibits anti-competitive acquisitions that are designed to prevent uh, competitors from arising. Instead, we had an FTC that was relatively asleep on the job. I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me is we saw all these documents come forward in this hearing that the FTC could have gotten access to where, where they're talking about it as a land grab. You're not allowed to do that even under existing antitrust even law. Even
2: for a company that's what, something like 1% of your size at that time?
0: You are not allowed to engage in anti-competitive acquisitions. That's the Sherman Act. The whole idea is that you aren't allowed to protect, uh, uh, protect your monopoly in that way.
2: I'm sorry, protect your what? I, I can't say this enough times. Facebook does not have anything like a monopoly on digital advertising. There is, you're not going to let them acquire a tiny little... Let me finish. You're not going to let them acquire a tiny little company like Instagram? Th- then you're not going to let them acquire anything. I want to go on to another
1: question. Uh, let's have a listen.
2: My name is Nicholas Thompson.
1: I'm the editor of Wired. My question is, regardless of whether you think the big tech companies deserve to be broken up, and regardless of whether they've broken our monopoly laws, do you think that the current government, as currently constructed, could effectively and efficiently break them up in a way that is actually good for competition? Thank you. I think we're going to have a clear yes or no on this one. But Zephyr, can you take just 30 seconds on this point? Because I think it covers some ground that we've already covered. But I think that the the question from Nick, and Nick, thanks for your question, is to whether the current administration could handle this, could handle this breakup.
0: I think it's important to understand what our current government is. It's the FTC, it's the DOJ, but it's also the state attorneys general. And I'm really glad that uh, state attorneys general are looking into antitrust violations at at Google and Facebook, because I think they're going to play an important role, as they have traditionally in antitrust actions.
2: Zephyr, we agree on something. This is fantastic.
0: Yes. Yes, we do.
1: All right. We're going to wrap up this round, our sort of freewheeling conversation, and move on to a round we're calling the challenge question. And each of you has a chance right now, after everything you've heard here, to put to your opponent the question that you think most challenges their stance or that they have really failed to answer in a compelling way. So uh, I'll start with you, Zephyr. What's your challenge question to your opponent on this topic, Andrew McAfee?
0: Well, um, as you may know, I've been very outspoken about um, corporate funding in the academy, And this last two weeks, there have been two major scandals uh, showing how intensely Google was funding key antitrust skeptics at George Mason. And I wonder how you think about uh, maintaining an open mind on antitrust policy while being in a position that your work is being funded by these powerful tech companies.
2: I don't quite know because I'm not an antitrust scholar, so I can't put myself in those shoes. But do I think everybody in the academy becomes a mouthpiece for tech companies and their viewpoints if they take money from tech companies? I have a super clear answer to that. No, I absolutely don't. Um, My initiative at MIT has taken money from tech companies and plans to continue to do so. And I think that I still am able to function as an independent thinker and an independent scholar. Was it Brandeis who said that sunlight is the best disinfectant? Make sure everybody knows about these potential conflicts of interest and proceed from there.
1: All right, thank you. And Andrew, your challenge question to Zephyr. Uh,
2: Zephyr, can you help me understand how these primarily Rust Belt, classic American middle class families and communities will see their fortunes improve if we smash big tech companies?
0: Yeah, thank you. I actually feel like this is the one area that we haven't talked about enough which is the growing evidence that concentration is actually decreasing people's wages. There's really powerful evidence uh, from a group of economists that just came out two years ago showing that in concentrated industries, you see as much as a $14,000 per year drop in worker salaries. And that's really substantial um, amount of money. And that money is instead going to um, shareholders, investors, basically. So all the small businesses that rely on Amazon, the small businesses that pay overly high fees for advertising to both Google and Facebook who have a duopoly in digital advertising, the money that they are paying in essentially private taxes to these private governments is money that isn't going into their communities. The depressed wages that warehouse workers have, and there's evidence that uh, Amazon pays less than other warehouse workers, is money that isn't going into those communities. So monopoly is actually one of the great drivers of inequality. And I'm really glad you raised this question because this is what really drives me.
1: All right. Now we move on to our closing remarks. And once again, we're going to hear from each debater as we did at the beginning, uh, summarizing or, or wrapping up the arguments that were made. Um, We're going to make these 90 seconds. I have to hold you to the 90 seconds. Uh, The clock will come up. Uh, We're going to go in the speaking order in the same way as we did in the beginning. So first up, to make closing remarks, once again, Zephyr Teachout.
0: Thank you so much for this debate. We, We just started to scratch the surface. One of the things that we saw in this last week's hearing is that although these four tech companies operate in really different ways, there's ways in which they all are really similar they all have become bottlenecks for uh, channels of distribution. They control whether it's the communication sphere or online retail or the app store in really fundamental ways. And while we spent most of our time talking about questions of how to break things up and what the impacts are on small businesses, I think we should take the moment we have and break them up.
1: Thank you very much, Zephyr. Uh, and our final comment will come from Andrew McAfee. Andrew, the floor is yours for your closing.
2: Amazon play- pays all of its entry-level workers at least $15 an hour. This is t- more than twice the federal minimum wage, and I think it's a lot higher than the rest of the distribution industry. I bring that up because, I, Zephyr, in some cases, I don't think you're on top of the facts, whether it's Amazon's wages or the fact that concentration was much higher in the economy in the 60s and 70s or the actual e-commerce market share of, of companies like Amazon. I think you're proceeding from a, a shaky basis in facts, and that makes me have a lot less confidence in some of your other arguments. And I fundamentally disagree that democracy is incompatible with large, powerful companies. I I, I just don't think that case has been proven at all. Uh, And I don't think these companies have anything like a stranglehold on our ability to communicate. If we don't like the avenues available with one of them, there are many other options available. And I don't think they have a stranglehold on the ability of entrepreneurs and innovators to go do what they want to do without having to kowtow to one of the big four or the big five here. So I, I think this has been fantastic because it does highlight there are these two very, very different views about the state of the world, how bad it is, and what we should do about it. Again, I, I support continued vigilance. I support some tweaks like porting the social graph, but our tech industry is doing what we want it to do. And I think the last thing we should do is, is grab a hammer and smash it up for some reasons that we like.
1: All right, Andrew McAfee and Zephyr Teachout. You've you've both demonstrated why we call this conversation "agree to disagree." You 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 both came on. Uh, you clearly disagreed on fundamental issues, but you did so in a manner that was, um, I would say, quite agreeable. Uh, you were civil and respectful, and uh, you listened to each other. You responded to each other. I particularly liked in the uh, the challenge question round that you really did respond to each other. And uh, I want to thank you both for the spirit and the the, the and intelligence that you brought to this conversation it's beneficial to all of us to hear conversations and argument happen in this way so andrew and zephyr thank you so very very much for joining us
2: fantastic thank you
0: thank you
1: and i want to let you all know that this episode of agree to disagree was recorded on july 31st 2020 Intelligence Squared is generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is chief of staff. Shea O'Mara is director of editorial. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is our senior researcher. Crystal Halls and Rob Christensen are our radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time.